Well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here, and welcome to The Daily Evolver. A special welcome to those of you who are joining live via Integral Life. Thank you, Integral Life, for hosting me low these many years. And a happy solstice, holiday, Christmas to everybody. It uh, feels good here at Boulder. It's a cold wind. We've had snow, and uh, I'm feeling all cozy. So it's good to be with you. I will say that I won't be here next week live, uh, taking the week off for New Year's. Yeah, and I'll be back on January 6th, which is Wednesday. So today I thought I'd just tie up some loose ends. Um, I'm going to do a little bit on the products of the year, uh, decade, and millennia at the end. Uh, but first, I want to go through some of my more recent and, and favorite letters that I've received from you folks. And I always love hearing from you. You can email me at jeff at dailyevolver.com. You could go to the dailyevolver.com site, click the button that says connect, and you can leave me a voicemail. And I'll play a voicemail here in a minute too. But first, I wanted to read a note I got from a listener, Margaret, who is responding to the uh, episode I did last week. It was on the evangelical schism that is going on with this Jericho movement. But what really got a lot of response and attention, and I'll get to an, another one or two, is the third part of it where I played a scene from Five Easy Pieces with Jack Nicholson, where he you know, kind of torments a waitress in a traditional Georgia truck stop and because he wants toast and toast isn't on the menu. Uh, so anyway, you've heard it. It's um, on that podcast and it's a famous scene. And so Margaret writes to me and she says, in 1968, we spent one year in Georgia as newlyweds. And that scene with Jack Nicholson had me laughing out loud all over again. Georgia, 1968, was still dealing with Lester Maddox as governor, and we Californians, non-hippies, but perceived that way, learned a lot. My arrogance took center stage in hindsight. Recently, when I was on the freeway, I saw on the overpass demonstrators with stop the steal signs, and I was shocked, less by what I saw than where I saw it, here in the Bay Area even here. There's a part of me that has continued to believe that shenanigans like that only happen in the Deep South. Every movie you mentioned, Deliverance, Easy Rider, uh, every movie was a movie I saw and believed. Your show today helped me broaden my own understanding and realize what's going on. I'm so grateful because I knew I was missing something. I'm, a, I'm related to serious Catholic believers and I really do want to understand them. You're a big help in that regard. Please keep it up. So I like that one. <laughs> um, I'm gonna take a little uh, detour before I get to somebody who doesn't really agree with Margaret and me. Uh, but I, I have to say I was taken by, you know how people have at the bottoms of their emails, they have these quotes that you know they're offering. And she has one that I loved here and I'm gonna read it to you. And it's by Williams Irving Thompson. And he writes, it's just one line. He says, for the first time in human evolution, the individual life is long enough 
and the cultural transformation swift enough that the individual mind is now a constituent in the global transformation of human culture. And I love that. There's really, I often talk about how just the length of our life increases our you know, op uh, options and, and probabilities for development, but also the fact that culture is speeding up. So it's really two things happening. And I thought that was really great. I actually looked this guy up, William Irwin Thompson. And he wrote a book, Self and Society, Studies in the Evolution of Culture. And I'd never heard of him. And I always want to be up to date on things like people who are talking about the evolution of culture. And I went to his site, and he's associated with the Ross Institute for Advanced Study and Innovation and Education. And they are doing real curricula for K through college, really, that is built on the spiral of development. And I thought it was really interesting. I'll, it's worth checking out. There's a YouTube of him talking about his thesis, and it's very similar to what I talk about, you know, the stages of development, but he's talking about education being related to first graders learning those beige, magenta, infrared stages, you know, and moving up and how that would inform as kids move through traditional, modern, postmodern, inform the curricula. And I, I have to say I was taken by a comment that was in the YouTube comments that was uh, quite dismissive. And, and I think this is the kind of thing that we get and can expect more of as integral permeates the culture. And this is a comment from Akila. And I think it's a woman, she writes, this reeks of wig, W-H-I-G, wig history and invented universalisms. Imagine deconstructing slash universalizing every ethnoculture on the planet for the sake of errant theory, and then wanting to foist this on children, likely mutilating their perception and experience of their own heritage in the process. Though not to worry, a few generations of this educational thinking, and nobody will have any heritage anyway. Perfect for the world state. <laughs> You know, it's an intelligent response. It's, it's actually true. Uh, the only thing is we will keep the heritage. The heritage becomes ever more vivid uh, as we also relate to ever bigger uh, circles of compassion and moral consideration for more and more people to the point where, yes, we will have some version of a world state if the trajectory of humanity continues, and I don't see why it won't. <laughs> Maybe I could see why it won't, but assuming it will, that is probably inevitable. So we will have an integration of both of those things, depth and span. And that is an important retort that we can have to that sort of criticism. All right, now back to five easy pieces. And this is from a listener, Harry, and he writes, I've been trying to figure out what's been rubbing me the wrong way about your recent podcasts about the, about the Trumpsters. I think I'm getting closer to it. It's certainly true that all first tier stages work to suppress the preceding stage, but it's crucial to consider how they work to suppress them, and also to look at earlier stages recoiling from later stages. 
The key is the use of violence. And I want to emphasize that sentence because he does. The key is the use of violence. The travel writer, Bill Bryson, who I talked about writing a very insulting description in the 1970 in his book, The Lost Continent, about him traveling through rural, I think Georgia, but, oh, Mississippi says here. So, and I critique that. Um, he says, the travel writer who expressed fear about the Mississippi restaurant patrons, anyone familiar with the history of the freedom riders know that traditionalist racist Southerners used extreme violence against the freedom riders. Racism was and is maintained through violence and the threat of violence. I was born and raised in the South and I know how deep that hatred and violence runs. It's still there to this day, fueling the worst excesses of the, of the Trumpster movement. I agree with you about the repellent nature of five, five Easy Pieces. I've always been repelled by that film and never understood why it got such acclaim. Nicholson was a dick from beginning to end in that movie. But there's a qualitative difference between knocking glasses off a table and lynching freedom riders. All right, all right, that's not a fair, comp that's not a fair comparison. No one was going to lynch Jack Nicholson in that diner but I'm old enough to remember the violence of the 60s and the worst of it was state-sponsored violence. Yes, there were some extremists, terrorists on the left back then, but there was more violence by the traditionalist slash modernists against the postmodernists than vice versa. And the same is true today. Antifa pales in comparison to the violence on the right today. That is what troubles me about your attitude towards what seems to be a very real threat from the worst of the traditionalists today. There's a patronizing, aren't they adorable quality to your tolerance of them that dismisses the risk they pose. Burning Black Lives Matter signs at historically black churches is a threat of violence. True, my green sensibilities are inflamed now. The fervor is at a high pitch, fever is at a high pitch, not only in me, but in our culture. And Green has never had enough power to abuse it. Maybe I'll be proven wrong, and there will be a postmodern Taliban in the 21st century fully as hideous as anything traditionalists have done. But it seems to me that the greatest risk we threat is coming from the red amber strata that is fighting, literally and violently sometimes, against what is struggling to emerge. Keep on provoking me, brother. This is very fruitful stuff, Harry. Wow. So yeah, I, I agree with that. Here's what, I, here's what I would say. And I think, Harry, you, you get to it in, in a way. And that is that in the mid-60s, through maybe the late 60s, 1970, this movie came out then. A lot of this sort of new green cultural stuff came out really fully online, early 70s. But there was a fulcrum there where on the earlier side of it, before civil rights laws, there was a hundred years of Jim Crow that was enforced by violence and violent at a level that Green hasn't even begun to equal. So in that way, yes, traditionalists are more violent than postmodernists. And that's truth. I mean, well, history is, you know, mostly traditionalism, written history, 
uh, and um, at least the last, you know, 10,000 years. And yes, it is enforced by violence. So um, actually it'd be 4,000 years, sorry. So yes, so burning signs may be fairly interpreted as a threat. It's not actual violence, I would point out, but it has signifiers that evoke these deep fears that come from the world before the Civil Rights Act. Green fought back with that and, and felt um, entitled to. I actually, reading your letter, I get, okay, I sort of can get more sympathetic with why I loved that scene and all everybody I know loved that scene and that, um, you know, they deserved it. Because at that stage of the game, that was the devil we knew. And so we did fight back with the whole anti-hero, you know, unreliable narrator, all of the green stuff, you know, sneering disdain for uh, transgressions out the wazoo, moral opprobrium for traditionalism, you know, patriotism, fundamentalism. And I get, you know, that there was a appropriateness to that, uh, considering what traditionalism had brought with it uh, for the, you know, Jim Crow and, and all of the oppressions for gay people and everything. So I would say that's true. But I would also say that the cultural tides have turned radically since then. And you say there was more violence by the traditionalists slash modernists against the postmodernists than vice versa. True, absolutely, pre-1965. And the same is true today, I'm not so sure. Antifa pales in comparison to the violence on the right today. I'm not so sure about that. If I think about what went on this summer in Portland and Minneapolis and many cities with the cities being, you know, held under siege in a certain way on the left. Now, the Proud Boys were in there too, but it was, they were the, it was the left that was running the show. And, you know, there was looting and uh, violence, some death, uh, actually considerably very little considering the history of political violence in this world. And that's, you know, another point we want to make is that violence as a whole is radically down. There was a bump this summer, uh, to be sure. But I would just ask you to imagine if the Proud Boys or QAnon had done the same in a Baton Rouge, you know, where they're occupying city blocks like Seattle and throwing Molotov cocktails and having demonstrations and speakers talking about how much, you know, in Portland, they were talking about how they hate white people. So, you know, I'm not so sure that the tides haven't turned there. Of course, as in the whole, it's far less violent, the traditionalism for sure, but that's the nature of evolution, thank God. Um, so, you know, if we look at what side's more violent, there's no question the traditionalists will win that uh, contest. But today, I'm not sure, you know, if I think of who's more violent, postmodern green or traditionalist blue amber, the answer is actually neither of them are. Both have been effectively pacified by orange in the middle with the FBI and all the crime and you know the, everything that we do. I mean, these 
militia in, in, in Michigan who were going to kidnap the governor. They didn't have a chance. And that's good. You know, that's orange law enforcement and basically orange consciousness that is pacified. Largely do, uh, as I make the case in Judge Judy, Evolution's Warrior, one of my favorite episodes of this year, is it's just the, the way we marinate in the lessons of modernity and laws and organization and self-responsibility and a little morality plays. And that is, and that's just the nature of the whole situation. And I think we want to notice that. If you want to talk about what violence remains, it's coming from red. And it's very opportunistic, red. Red will come in and create mayhem wherever there's, you know, a demonstration or something that is, you know, maybe emotionally hot, but then they turn it into real crime. And I talked about a article that I read in the Washington Post. I was trying to find it. I can't, but they did a summation of all of the political crime that happened in one weekend in America and each one of them. And what they were, were the basic kind of opportunistic criminal behavior, looting, some stabbings, but it wasn't anything organized. There was some Molotov cocktails in Portland <laughs> from the left, but, you know, that's, violence is down enormous, enormously. Now, you know, people sometimes get a little rankled that I talk about the pacification of modernity because... There are florid, modernity um, facilitates florid violence, like megaton bombs and mass shootings. Those are modern phenomena. The, the ex exploitation of the natural world, you know, half of the animals are dead because of modernity. That is a different kind of violence and I completely accept it. And that is part of the part of modernity, that post-modernity is just in time to fix, and hallelujah for evolution. So, um, so that's what I'd say to uh, Harry, and thank you for your always stimulating uh, letters. Okay, next, I want to feature a couple letters from listeners regarding the evangelical episode uh, on the Jericho movement, which is this movement where conservative Christians who have really taken on Trump as a religious figure are calling on the angels of, angels of God to tear down the system as they did in the siege of the city of Jericho back in the Old Testament. And so <laughs> this, this is a fun, quick letter from Farzan in Iran. And he says, hi, Jeff, I just listened to your podcast, The Evangelical Schism. It is noteworthy that despite all of the socio-cultural differences between Iran and the U.S., there are similarities between the religious extremists there and our red-level religious nuts as well. As you noted, this is more elucidated by the levels of development than through any other prism. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Uh, I also got a voicemail that I'm going to play, and this is about two minutes, and it's wonderful. It's from a listener, Harriet, and she talks about, you know, what is this integral 
move in spirituality that would include mythic belief, or at least relating mythically to uh, one's religion, uh, you know, one's uh, belief system, if you will. She is a new thought minister, and she has a very interesting history, and I just love what she has to say, so I'm going to play that. I was someone who was raised in a family where my parents were solid orange, rational, and as my three older brothers, and they were also very orange rational. And I had an experience as a child where I became one with Jesus or the Christ presence, and it was extraordinary. But I knew in, in the family in which I was raised that that mystical experience would not be understood or accepted. Um, and in postmodern pluralistic community with all its good stuff and its dysfunction, and then slowly moved into the integral world or popped into the integral world. Love that. But ultimately, what happened after a dark night of the soul is I got drawn back into um, loving Jesus as at the mythic level. I was reading a book, Mountain of Silence, and it was about the green pluralist Kyriakos Marquitas writing, uh, who's at the green pluralistic stage, writing about a mythic uh, spiritual system, the, the monks on Mount Athos, and it totally opened my heart. And so for the last seven years, along with being a minister of a spiritually progressive world, allowing full diversity of paths, I personally was traversing a very intimate path with Jesus Christ at the mythic level, very conscious of what I was doing, that it was um, the mythic theology. I love the Wilbur Combs lattice because it really helped differentiate between their, their human development and their spiritual development. So And so it, that's been sort of a part of where I've been for seven years. And I feel it's fully integrated now, and I'm so grateful. But it was something I could never do as a child. So isn't that cool? Thank you, Harriet. Uh, I would really like to know more about that mythic relationship with Jesus, because I know others in the integral world who have that sort of thing. And I, too, have uh, not necessarily Jesus for me, but I relate to sort of, I don't know, disembodied others, angels, what I remember to. Um, and I get, I'd, I'd like to know more because I, I feel like I'm onto something and I'm flailing a little bit. Uh, God bless my flailing. <laughs> okay, next is oh, <laughs> this letter. Uh, this is from uh, a listener, Steve. And um, it's, again, just fun. And he writes, the, the subject line is, your ebullient resilience. And the email reads, Jeff, exclamation point. You're like a DJ standing over a crowd of writhing, pulsing humanity, working frantically get, to get off on, get on top of, get their arms around, dive into the dance, dot, dot, dot on the deck of the Titanic. <laughs> you ruined it, Steve, I was with you. Uh, and then he goes on, <laughs> another line is great. He says, nobody ever considers looking up to consider that the iceberg has an integral role. Else we're likely to stop dancing and turn to running around, tearing our hair, rending our garments. So I'm glad I have ebullient resilience in the face of that. All right, next is, 
Oh, a, a wonderful, uh, it's a posting, I guess. I actually don't know. I think it's from Facebook. I didn't see it myself, but I had somebody send it to me as a screenshot. And somebody had posted this meme and it says, who here understands spiral dynamics? Will you share how this perspective helps you feel grounded through these current events? And so there are a number of answers. And this uh, one answer is from Josh. And he recommends that she listen to the Daily Evolver and that he has been listening to it for years and that he finds it says very nice things. And one of the words he uses is it, that it has been psychoactive for him. And that's a really interesting word, and I'm very happy to hear it, and I want to come back to it in a minute. But he ends with a summation of the thesis that I think sums up integral thinking. It's what I try to do here at The Daily Evolver, and, and this is his version of it. And I love hearing it from other people because I always get a new transmission. And in Josh's case, it's just very, you know, sort of beautiful and economically said. So here it is. He, he, so he goes on and he recommends a couple episodes even, but then he says, but here's a high level answer to your question for starters, colon. One, evolution is happening. Two, evolution is beautiful, but often not pretty. Three, the culture wars are directly contributing to our evolution. And four, most people's behavior no matter how short-sighted it may seem, makes sense from within their worldview, with those worldviews each having gifts worth integrating, as well as limitations. <sighs> you know, I read that and I want to cry. I mean, that is just so beautifully said. And, you know, I get another deeper understanding out of, of myself having heard that. So thank you, Josh. Okay, so now I'm going to shift gears in a uh, sort of an odd way, but I have, I have often gotten, strangely enough, requests from people, do I award, like many podcasts or publications do, product of the year? And I never have, I don't think, maybe I have, but uh, I have it in some years. I, mean, I don't think I ever have, but but I often think of it because, you know, like you and everybody else, I'm always in this fast moving world, finding new stuff that is like, wow. So I am going to present a idiosyncratic product of the year, decade and millennia so far. And uh, it's just for me and take it for what it's worth. Okay. So the first one is the product of the year, and I'm going to award it to three quick items, actually. One is the Joyce Chen kitchen scissors. They're called the most versatile household tool available. They are fabulous. They're small, left or right, and they have a nice little way of getting up and under things. They're very sharp, and I have them all over the house and use them 10 times a day. That's one. The second is my man bag. And um, who knew what you women had going for you, where you can carry things and not deal with pockets and dropping things and keeping things organized. 
I started out with a man bag that I got in a Mexican market that had a big sunflower on it. And it was slightly bigger than that. But my friend told me that it was too feminine. And I tried, I tried, God notice I tried not to take that to heart and to continue to carry it. And I did for a while, but now I've got manly black. Okay, and the third one is actually not, I mean, I've had this for a couple years, but I just have to mention it every chance I get. And this product has changed my life and many people's. And that is <laughs> my electric toilet seat. And I got one of those Totos. I installed it myself. It was 300 bucks and it's electric and it shoots water up the hoo-hoo and it has all kinds of adjustments and it's warm water and it turns every morning into a little bliss state. And I learned about it on Reddit where it, apparently there are cultures, I guess, particularly Japan, where they're everywhere in every hotel room, you just wouldn't not have one. And there's these arguments going on, not really arguments, but people just a sort of uh, the tsunami of people who are just like everyone who tries it. It's like, wow. And uh, I remember the comment that I read that made me say, this is the day I order it. And it was a very simple comment. And somebody said, what other part of the body would you, when you have poop on it, you would wipe it off with a dry cloth or tissue? And I thought, they got me. So easy enough, 300 bucks and product of the year every year since I got it, which is three or four years ago. Okay, <laughs> this is fun. Next are my products of the decade or product of the, of the decade. And this is stuff that really came online since 2010. And again, it's a big category, but it's one thing in a certain way. And that is this whole line of battery operated things with these lithium ion batteries. This is one I have last night. The electricity went off. We had a windy night, some limbs fell obviously. And there's my light. And it's just gonna last forever with this battery. And if it doesn't, I have three more charged in the garage because they fit everything from, um, well, I'll show you the, this is my set that runs on those lithium batteries, the same batteries. It's a drill, it's a router, it's a sander, it's a percussion, I don't know what it all is, but I've used it and it's great. And they, these batteries are amazing. They last forever. And there's trimmers and there's blowers. And there is even an adorable little chainsaw. Can you believe this thing? Battery operated and really handy for, you know, light work. And <laughs> I was thinking of it as I looked at it this morning, that it would be a very interesting and particularly horrible horror film that would use a chainsaw killer that used a you know, bat little battery operated chainsaw. So that's amazing. And uh, it, it all culminates for me. And again, this is my own idiosyncratic list. It all uh, culminates for me with my 2015 Nissan Leaf, the electric car 
The one that looks like a Black & Decker car, it's retro, it's funny looking, it only gets 85 miles for a charge. I charge it at a wall socket and uh, it's all I will ever need. And it is great. It's been in the shop one time to have the tires rotated. I have to put windshield washer fluid in it. And, you know, it looks like a little dog, but it is, there's just, there's an X factor to that electric zoom, that instant torque. And the fact that you don't have basically a bonfire, <laughs> a controlled fire that with 10,000 moving parts, which is the miracle of internal combustion. Please, these cars are works of art and they will continue, I'm sure, as works of art and should. But, you know, the world's going electric and you get one taste of it and you can see why. And I blame it on my friend Hui, who often listens to this podcast, who came by five or six years ago with one of the first Teslas, the Model S. And, you know, it's really one of those things where when something's evolutionarily potent and you see it, you get it, it's like you can't ever see the same way again. And I got out of that car a different person and I just couldn't justify a Tesla. Uh, and so I got the leaf and love it. Okay, so I'm going to um, move now to the product of the millennia so far, now that we're closing the 20th year of this millennia is coming to an end. And there are two things. One is just firmly plant, planted in third person. It's a thing. And it is just amazing to me. And it's amazing to me that I haven't thought of it sooner as being an extraordinary object. But I do now. And that is something that you folks are familiar with, too, to the degree that I ever twist and turn. And that is my Herman Miller air on chair which I got in the year 2000. And I've sat in like this, just flopped in for years. It's got a mesh that is always, it's just as tight as it was the day I got it. It is, you know, very comfortable, always cool. The mechanisms work going up and down and all around changing the armrests. It could pass for brand new. And I have sat in it multiple hours a day for 20 years. And I can't believe there's something this good. The design, the materials, bravo. And I understand it is in the Museum of Modern Art and it is widely hailed as a great achievement of both aesthetically and practically, and it deserves to be. So that's my product of the millennia in the third person. The probably more important one is one that more resides in the first person. And, you know, they all... Everything involves everything, but this is the thing that most changed my life in the last 20 years. And I will hold it up for you now. Ta 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 ta. Ken Wilber's book, Sex, Ecology, and Spirituality, published in the year 2000 by Shabala Publishing, subtitled The Spirit of Evolution. And this book has changed a lot of people's lives and really, in a way, defined the, the contemporary integral movement. It certainly has for me. I was a Ken Wilber fan long before this book. But this book, and, and, and its companion, actually, in, in a way, I think of it as such, it's the six-tape series that Ken Wilber did with Tammy Simon of Sounds True. It's an audio series. You can get it on Sounds True. 
and it is called Cosmic Consciousness. And this, and, and, and it is Ken at his most sparkling, and he is a sparkling vehicle for his own theory. And it was really the first time I had really heard Ken Wilber's voice on that tape. And um, it was like, wow. So really, you know, I, I go back to that word that Josh used about what he's get, getting from the Daily Evolver. And it's, it's really about integral itself. And that is that it's psychoactive. You, you see the world differently, having understood it, having gotten the download. And I love that. And I would point out that that is a feature of every stage development is you see the world differently and you are really delivered into a different world. This is the secret teaching of, you know, these well, stages of development in this case. Um, I, I think of um, cave paintings were probably psychoactive in bringing on a mode of abstract thinking that had literally not existed before in the cosmos, as we know it, at least. People were not the same having seen the cave paintings. And power gods that organized humanity into empires. And, you know, and talk about evolution not being pretty. This would be the 10,000 to, the, you know, a thousand years ago. And even into today in, in many ways. And, uh, and when you get religion, when you accept Jesus Christ as your personal savior, as I did at age 12, you know, it was a beautiful new sparkly world uh, at that point. And when you lose your religion, <laughs> in my case, at least, in the traditional form, at least, and see that the world can be engaged on its own terms with reason and experimentation, and you move into modernity. And, and then green is psychoactive. When you develop a more planetary consciousness, and become sensitized to the predicament and the karmas of other people and really all living things. And that feels like a new world too. And, and so does integral, you know, where you realize that all of these worlds get to be here and they are actually flying in a formation and that we are being lived by the same thing that created them and we move into what we would say would be cosmic consciousness, which is the name of the tape program. It's K-O-S-M-I-C and it's cosmic consciousness because it includes the interiors, not just C-O-S-M-I-C, which is the universe. And it's pretty amazing too, but the interior, interior universe is as well. And of course, this is one of the great achievements of Ken Wilber is, and it's laid out in sexicology and spirituality and in cosmic consciousness, is this idea of the aqua model, the, the quadrants and levels and lines and states and types. And these are five models that comprise the aqua model that, you know, as Ken says, is the best integrating um, map of basically us, of all of us and our realities. It's a map of you, as he says that um, is just includes the most things. There will be more and better maps as uh, the cosmos develops, but it's the best we have so far and I would agree. And to just do a quick rundown of, of course, the quadrants, 
uh, that there is this individual interior and exterior, this world that I have inside of me and in my body and my behaviors. And then in the collective, there's an interior, there's a culture and a collective consciousness and an exterior, there's the world at large, you know, nature and highways and all of the stuff that uh, Herman Miller air on chairs that uh, exist in the third person. And so th that is, and that these four dimensions of reality are tetra arising, they're intertwingled and one as much as they want to, and through history have, one colonizes another. So the world is nothing, nothing but thought, or there is in the modern world, nothing but material. Those are one quadrant or the other, one side of the quadrants colonizing another. And we want to hold all four of them. And we have to have an open space in order to do that because you can't otherwise. And that is one of the features of integral consciousness is that we do have that space. And then we see that all things are evolving in all four quadrants and evolving through stages or evolving out stages in the sense that the inner stages don't leave. They get suppressed, they get split off, they get demonized, but they don't leave, they're still there. And so one could look at it more as one looks look look down at a target, or um, or just see that things are just every stage is in a sense developing. And so even the rings of the target are getting bigger. And so that's stages and lines. And I focus a lot of that, a lot on that in the Daily Evolver because I'm talking so much about the culture war, which is the war between traditionalism and postmodernism in its simplest form. And those are stages of development with both great gifts and you know, some disasters. Uh, the third, so quadrants, levels, and then lines. Lines means that we are evolving as human beings, at least, in many lines of development, cognitive, emotional, interpersonal, physical, subtle, body, you know, we're evolving in all of those ways. And even as our physical body runs out, you know, if we play our cards right, we will have a bigger subtle body than ever as we move on to the next, um, whatever it is. And so that is, and I always love what Ken would say about lines is that there are as many lines of development as things that you can say about human beings. So I think of, you know, the culinary line, the parenting line, the being a good listener line, the all of the ways that people are different and developed in these frothy ways. That, and, and of course, you know, the day of the week matters too. And that gets to the next one, which is states. And states just means, you know, the degree of contraction. Are we contracted around the physical or we, uh, could we expand to the subtle or realms of thought or the causal realms of spirit? And that at every stage of development, people have all of those states available to them. So they have full-on religious ex experiences. That's why, you know, that's the, people stumble on that with the idea of cultural evolution. It's like, well, wait a second. Weren't there geniuses of evolution in history? Yes. There are people who spiked into high levels in various lines. And, you know, we think of them as saints and sages of history. And there's something about them that rivets us and draws us forward. But, you know, the center of gravity of the culture as we look is a, more of a, you know, accelerating. But 
more steady state thing because it includes in the collective people of all kinds of lines and you know we get really curious about each other at integral and that gets us to types and that's the last of the five so we have quadrants levels lines states and types <clears throat> and types is just this realization that for me at least this is how i would think of it is that we come into this life trailing 10,000 lifetimes of karma and some of it arises as hardware, you know, it's genetic. Some of it is firmware. It's really hard to change. Some of it's software. It's relatively programmable. And that, and that everybody's different. And again, the, the move in integral is to get curious instead of critical about people who are just arising at a different cosmic address. They're emphasizing different quadrants that are different states and different lines. They're having a this day or a that day. And they're basic mechanism is wired differently. And, and it was such a relief. Ken uh, 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 emphasizes in his teaching a lot, the Enneagram as being one of the typologies. There's Myers-Briggs, there's the human design project. There are many. And actually, uh, to the degree that I've kissed the various frogs, they've all turned into princes. You know, they're all really useful. But I do, as many integralists do, tend to focus on the Enneagram. And I'm a five. And, you know, when I first read about fives, it was like, wow, who, who nobody knows me like the person who just wrote this chapter. You know, it was just like so spot on. And it really helped me to realize that um, not everybody is a defective version of me which is what I thought, and which is what a lot of people thought, and which is what is the standard thinking in first-tier memes, is that, I mean, we, we get uh, way more curious and way more uh, flexible with people as we move into modernity and post-modernity, no doubt. But the idea that those stages are the right ones becomes the new, you know, catechism or the new, uh, you know, system where you're in, if you're green, you're in, and if you're not green, you're out kind of thing. If you're orange, you're in, if you're not, you're out, that sort of thing. So anyway, the Enneagram and typology and all of this has just helped me enormously. And the last thing I'd say about it is that, is that all of it is arising. This, uh, the aqua model is a map of manifest reality, not absolute reality. And all of it is arising in the empty space or the Godhead that is the creator of all things and um, sees us and loves us, in my opinion. I think there's a big second person built into the whole thing. All right, Sue. That's my product of the millennia is sex, ecology, and spirituality and cosmic consciousness. One, you know, the footnotes are a third of the book. Uh, and it's, it can be dense. I actually find Ken's writing to be mother's milk. I mean, it just flows in so easily for me. But if it doesn't, and for many people it doesn't, Cosmic Consciousness, the tape, I'm sure it's still available on Sounds True, probably as a download, I'm sure it is, um, well worth it. And, and actually even a good Christmas gift for people who you've in your world that you've found are uh, interested, but they don't, you know, they can't read a Ken Wilber book or you, you're finding your, you know, it's not so easy to explain it. Uh, give it to them. K-O-S-M-I-C, Cosmic Consciousness, sounds true. All right. So 
I guess I would end with a thank you to Ken for writing it and thinking it all up. Really, you know, so much gratitude as many of us have. And I, I want to share this too. I sometimes put it on the website. Uh, it is, and this is the Ken Wilber Gratitude Fund. And it is a fund set up by a bunch of people who are grateful to Ken. And if you are interested in giving Ken a gift and uh, showing your support and gratitude, it's kenwilberfund.org. Easy enough. So check it out. And, and there you go. Another daily offer. Uh, okay. Well, I think I'm back. Yes, I am. And um, yeah, thank you so much for listening. Uh, thank you for those of you who are tuning in live. It's really nice to know you're there. And um, I hope you all have a great season, a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. And I won't be here next week, but I'll be back on Wednesday, the 6th of January. And we'll take it from there. Okay. Thanks, folks. <laughs> <laughs>